moment ago in John chapter number 4, where we had our scripture reading, and I want to call out one of the verses for you. We'll read that again, and then we'll have a word of prayer and look at the message for today. John chapter 4, and let's look at verse number 9, shall we? Take a look down in your Bible, please, at John chapter 4, verse 9. Let me read this one for you. Thus saith the, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So we'll ponder that question for just a few moments while we have prayer, and then we'll look at it a little bit more deeply. Heavenly Father, thank you for the loving kindness of God, that which has brought us all safely through another week, ushered us into a new week with the Lord's Day, and given us the opportunity as well as the leadership and burden in our hearts to be in the house of the Lord, to begin that week exactly as you have told us to, by setting it apart for worshiping God and looking to you for the spiritual rest and blessing that we need for our souls. Thank you that you are that refuge, that you are that haven that we heard sung about a few moments ago. And Father, uh, we know we can claim your promise where Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Seems like so many times that's such an apt description of how we feel. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavier laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you for that promise. And I pray, Father, that whatever our souls need today, whether it is that encouragement and rest and spiritual balm, or whether it's admonition or encouragement, you alone know us as individuals. You alone know what we need. And I pray, Father, that we will sense the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit today as the Word is preached, because we know we can listen to sermons and we can preach sermons, but if you're not in it and you're not working and we haven't humbled ourselves before you to tell you that we know we need you and we desire that you will be the one who ministers here today, through your word, then we know, Lord, that we may miss the blessing that you truly designed for us. Help us, Lord, with the many different things that are part of our lives, that are on our minds, and it seems like somehow when we come to a worship service, it seems like all those things just sort of sprout out, and we remember 57 things it seems like we need to get taken care of this week or something that we need to pay attention to this afternoon, and deliver us, Lord, from that. Help us just to realize that we are here uh, for this now, to, to look into your word, and we'll get to those things later, and just give us uh, that leadership now, and that victory, and that blessing, I pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, John chapter 4 and verse 9 has a very interesting question in it, doesn't it? And it calls to mind, for anybody who may, for the first time, uh, be listening to one of these Sunday morning messages that were doing a series that's called They Asked Him This, where we're sort of looking at the questions that people ask Jesus. And that's interesting because, um, just think about it for a moment, if you had the opportunity to ask Jesus a question, what might it be? And if you read the Gospels, you find that many people did have opportunities to ask questions, and many times they're questions we have. Other times they may not be questions we have, but boy, are they ever helpful as we listen to the answers that the Lord gives. A large segment of these were asked by Jesus' disciples, and so that's intensely practical for us because I think that's where most of us believe we are as Jesus' disciples. We've trusted Christ as Savior, and we're, we're trying in some way to follow him, so we're interested in the things of the Lord just as they were, and we hear things in the Bible, we read things in the Bible just as they heard him say things when he taught. They weren't sure what it meant. They asked questions. We have another whole large segment, not quite as large as the first, but where Jesus' opponents ask 
questions of him. That's also quite interesting. Then we have people from all walks of life that Jesus encountered. That's sort of where we are this morning, if you think about this, because the woman at the well was not so much one of Jesus' disciples, at least not when he first engaged her, when he first met her at the well. She's uh, what you might say random, except there is no randomness to this. This is all a divine appointment, as we read about in verse number four. He must needs go through Samaria. Maybe more of a comment on that in just a few moments. But I say that only in the sense that this is someone that Jesus encountered in the everyday affairs of life. And, you know, folks, many times that seems random to us, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you pull up at the gas station. You don't necessarily know there's going to be a guy next to you putting gas in his car. Sometimes they just pay attention completely to what they're doing and don't say anything. Sometimes they say something to you. Uh, you have no, no way, really, sometimes in the course of a day when you're out mixing and mingling with people to know uh, whom you may encounter. Thank God he knows all that. And uh, I'm not much of a believer in, in coincidences. And this is not a coincidence, but this is certainly someone that Jesus encountered whom he did not know before and who was not necessarily an opponent of his and was certainly not one of his disciples when he met her. This is well known to us. This comes from the story of the woman at the well. And we have a song written to that effect, the woman at the well. Uh, and we sing that often and I think to good effect and enjoy it. Um, this is common only to John. So we've worked our way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels. And coming to the end, we have John's gospel. So a lot, if not most, of what we're going to look at here is unique to John's gospel. We haven't encountered these stories before, and John's gospel is very much that way, right? When you read it, you sense that's why you call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. That, that word synoptic is the idea of seeing things together because so much of the uh, content is similar, even though you can get a, a little different perspective or maybe a detail mentioned in one that's not in the other of the same story. But these that we have when we come to John's gospel are, are, are fresh, and that's what we've seen so far. That, that, that in question in chapter number one is a story, a story about Nathaniel and Jacob's ladder and all that, not contained in the other of the accounts in the gospels. Um, what we looked at with Nicodemus, certainly the story of Nicodemus is found only in the gospel according to John. This story is that way too. You don't get the story of the woman at the well anywhere else except John chapter four. So if we're going to learn about it, here's the place we have to take it all in. So since the story is unique to John, it goes without saying that the questions, plural, because she asks three, that the woman asked of Jesus are also unique to John's gospel. It's where we are today. We have the longer question and the initial question, the one that we're going to sort of take as the one for the topic of today's message in verse number nine. How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which as am a woman of Samaria? For the sake of the message title, I've shortened that just a little bit. How is it that a Jew would ask a Samaritan for water? But that's the first question, and that starts the whole uh, situation going after Jesus has asked her for the drink of water. She has another question in verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? That's not a bad question. Um, if we have the right location today, which this, this well seems to have survived, and we seem to be able to locate that, that's available today. I've been there, actually. And uh, when you go to that place, when she says it's deep, she's not exaggerating. It's 41 meters. 
And if you convert that, you've got something like around 135 feet. So I don't know any ladles that have a handle that long, do you? So Jesus, who's on a journey, certainly isn't equipped to deal with this well. And unless you've got the affair like we're kind of thinking of, where you've got something suspended over it with a roller and a rope, you're out of luck, buddy. You aren't getting any water out of that well. So when the woman came, she apparently had, had provision for that and, and probably was an old hand at doing that. Oftentimes, as we see in the Old Testament, the drawing of water was a, a task women did. And so um, you ladies can kind of, you know, women do all the work kind of thing. And uh, anyway, so that's in verse number 11. And then in the next verse, there's another question. She asks, Art thou greater than Jake, our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So as the conversation flows, additional questions come along, but the first one is really kind of the governing one. Let's say something else by way of introduction, and we'll jump into this. But um, when you compare what's going on between chapter 3 and chapter 4, it's amazing. How could you come up with two people who were more different? The two people that Jesus interacted with concerning their souls, in chapter 3, Nicodemus, in chapter 4, the one at the well. How could you find two people more different than that? And I don't know that I've got even a complete list, but one's a Jew, one's a Samaritan. One's a man, one's a woman. One's religious, one not so much so. One's moral, one's not so much so. One's respected, the other, well, in the eyes of the Jews at least, as a Samaritan, it's probably not too much to say despised, and then with her reputation, she probably didn't fare so well even with some of her own countrymen. So it's very difficult to figure out how you would have two more adverse or different, and yet what a blessing that is to know that God loves all men and all women and all boys and all girls. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're from. You can be religious and moral and unsaved, and he loves you. And you can be as unsaved as Hogan's goat and be an immoral person and a, and a sinner in the extreme, and he loves you and died for you and wants to give you eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. What a blessing that is. I will tell you, though, something that these accounts do have in common. I mentioned this with reference to Nicodemus, but if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25, it says there, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Just take that little phrase there once again, he knew all men. And, of course, that goes without saying he knows all women. Well, he certainly knew all about Nicodemus, right, even though... We have no record of any formal acquaintance before that time. He certainly knew all about Nicodemus and actually knew the hidden things of Nicodemus's heart, knew what the, the problem was, knew what the burden was, knew what prompted him to come to Jesus by night, knew all that. Just as when he met Nathaniel, he knew that Nathaniel was thinking about that scene at Jacob's well and was under the fig tree, and he knew all that. Jesus knows us all, and Jesus knows everything about us, and that can be encouraging, and that can be alarming. Jesus certainly knows everything there is to know about this woman, and she's duly impressed by that fact, too. She gets to the place where she says, wow, I think you must be a prophet. Every time I read that, I smile. You know, I, I've often made the remark, I know I've made the remark here, I, I feel sorry for people who don't see the humor in the Bible. There's really so much humor in the Bible, and this woman is going along, and, and it's like she's not getting it. 
just like Nicodemus didn't get it. When Jesus was talking about being born again, and he didn't get it. He said, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is talking about living water, and he doesn't have anything to draw with, and she doesn't figure out that he's using the, the water as a metaphor, as a figure for eternal life. It's a gift, and... Uh, he wants to give her that gift, and she doesn't figure that out until finally he starts talking about her husband and reveals that he knows all about that. And then she says, um, I think you must be a prophet. And every time I read that, I think to myself, you know, I'm tempted, except I know it's probably true of me more than it is of her. I'm tempted to go, duh. <laughs> you know, but it's at least worth a smile when you read that in the account. So I think there are many things that we can learn here, but what I want to concentrate on this today is a subject that really all Christians, we all need to hear sermons on this. We need to hear them maybe more regularly than we want to hear them because we all sort of know that we're supposed to do this, but we don't always do real well at it. And now here we've gotten from chapter 1, Jesus is drawing people to himself. To chapter 3, Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus, drawing people to himself. To chapter 4, Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well. He's drawing people to himself. And we all know that we're supposed to be witnesses. We all know that the Lord wants us to share the gospel with other people. And I think you have a, in this question, that what's triggered by this question and what ensues, I think you've got some tremendous lessons from the master soul winner and I have no problem with calling Jesus that. I don't think anyone could excel in that area, what Jesus has done. Uh, we certainly have evangelists that have that gift, people that are very skilled. And uh, many of the things, though, that make them skillful at this, we may not have that particular gift ourselves, but it doesn't mean that we can't increase in our ability and our wisdom in doing this. So what I want to show us today is four things from this story that I think will be helpful to us. These are things that we can observe the Savior doing. Not all encounters are the same. Not all people are the same. But these four points tend to be the same, even though you may vary how they're carried out. They're needful. The first of them is in chapter 4 and verse 7, and I would like to call this the approach. Chapter 4, verse 7, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Well, Jesus is on a divine mission. I said that earlier. If you're up in verse number four, he must needs go through Samaria. And I've told you many times, this isn't true geographically. In fact, it's not even what the Jews did in the light of what the woman said. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They would go out of their way. They would cross the Jordan River beneath Samaria and then recross the Jordan River if they were trying to get to Galilee just under the Sea of Galilee to the south so that they would avoid any dealings with the Samaritans because they didn't hold them in high regard. They, they, you know, some of that comes out in this chapter as the woman starts talking, but that's what they would do. But Jesus is doing something here. Jesus has a divine mission, and that divine mission involves reaching sinners. And it doesn't hurt for us to be reminded that, you know, if you ask yourself the question, what in the world are we doing? particularly when we know that God could have taken us home. I mean, isn't that true? God could have saved us and just taken us home. He's obviously left us here to do his bidding. doesn't mean everybody's a full-time Christian servant. It does mean everybody's a full-time Christian. 
And if we're disciples, uh, if we're disciples of Jesus, then we know Jesus said to his own disciples, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And it's, it's a process. It's something that over time we, we, sometimes we're more faithful than others and we get out of it and realize, get convicted and realize we haven't done much with this. And truthfully, I think that one of the problems for a lot of us is a lack of confidence. And one of the reasons that we have a lack lack of confidence in this respect is because we don't do it enough to learn what we need to learn to become better at it. So think about it this way. If if you're beginning a day thinking, you know, I want to be soul conscious. I want to be sensitive if the Lord would open an opportunity to to me to speak for him. Then you need to be thinking about exactly what Jesus did here. How are you going to approach that question with people? You meet somebody, maybe you have a decent opportunity to talk to them. And, or maybe you know them, and you, the Lord, you've been praying for them, and the Lord gives you an opportunity to talk to them. But the approach is really important because you know you've got a subject that, they, that may make them uncomfortable when you really get down to it. You've got a, a subject they may not want to talk about. You know the old saying about the two things you always avoid, religion and politics? And, and, you know, that's a worldly saying, of course, because we, we can't avoid talking to people about their souls, but we can be wise how we approach the issue. Because if you don't have something you can say that's relatively neutral, or at least that's non-abrasive, um, to get the ball rolling, you may find the conversation is over before it starts. And if you're rough, rude, and don't have much thinking put into this, then you may not get any opportunity. Do you notice how Jesus has something ready at hand? Now, I I know none of us are as smart as he is, but you can learn from this. Jesus says he starts the conversation with something that's totally neutral, has nothing to do with anything controversial. She's coming for water. He sat wearied with his journey. I I take the sixth hour of the day to be around noon, so you can imagine, especially if you're traversing hilly terrain and that hot sun is out, you can imagine Jesus sitting down there by that well, hot, tired, this woman he has nothing to draw with. The disciples are going into the city to buy food. We're told that detail. And this woman comes up, obviously equipped to draw water. And so Jesus says, give me to drink. It's a way of starting a conversation. He he hasn't even gotten to anything that, that has anything to do with witnessing yet, but it's a way of starting a conversation with her, and he knows exactly where he wants to go with this conversation and how he wants to turn that figure of water into something that he can use as a witness. That's really important for us to give some thought to that because, as I say, if we just rush in like fools where angels fear fear to tread, we may find that we've undone the thing before we start and done more harm than we would do good. Um, I have to tell you, I've been burdened about this over the years, and I think about my own personal responsibility and I think to myself, how, how, what, can I, what can I use that's in my life? What can I leverage? Because, you know, I find that as a preacher, I mean, that works for some people. If they're looking for that, to others, it's not what they want to hear. They already figure that you're going to clobber them over the head with something. And so, um, hmm, you know, I mean, it just kind of goes with the territory. So I've thought about this a lot over the years. And I remember a number of years ago, uh, it was December of 2000 when I fell out of that tree and hurt myself. And it wasn't too long after that, the next year, um, as I began to make a good recovery from all of that and so forth, that our 
the gentleman was our assistant pastor at the church at the time. He said to me, Pastor, he said, you need to write a track about that. Well, as soon as he said it, I thought, you know, he's right. But I did like a lot of, of you. I put it on a to-do list and never got around to it for, I think, seven years. But I can honestly tell you that what finally got me off the dime with that was thinking about, you know, I need something that I can use that relates to me as an individual that people are interested in, many people are interested in. I'm leveraging something in my life because I enjoy hunting. I have some, everybody has hunting stories, but maybe this is one that has some interest to people. Maybe this is something that people would read. And that's, that's really what provoked me to go to that list and see, yep, he told me to do that. And I know it was a good idea, but that's really what provoked me to do that. I was trying to find an approach to use to many, many people. And I'm, I'm certainly not holding myself up as an example because I, I think I don't do as well with this as I should or as much as I should, but we all can stand improvement, right? And I, I think to myself how easy it is when especially a bunch of guys come around or something, it's really easy for me to say, hey, anybody here do any hunting? Almost always somebody say yes. Well, then I, you, know, you pull that track out and you show them that picture on the front and they're right, oh, wow, that's interesting, you know, and I... I don't think I've ever had anybody refuse to take one. It's a tool for me. Well, I want to tell you about another person that uh, you know very, very well and give you, an, give you an example of how another person did this because this thing of approaching people and being able to enter into a conversation with them that, that will lead you to the opportunity to speak with them is really an important thing. Probably everybody here knows the named C.I. Schofield. Just out of curiosity, how many people have Schofield reference Bibles here this morning? Okay, that's a good representation of people. Well, certainly it's one of the best reference Bibles you can get. Well, the story of Schofield's conversion is an extremely interesting story. Do you know that in the earlier part of life, he was interested in studying law, but the war intervened, that is the war between the states, and he fought in the war Interestingly, even though he was born in the state of Michigan, Schofield fought um, on, in the Confederate Army and was involved in several of the significant battles. Well, after the war, he settled in St. Louis and went back to the study of law because that's what he really wanted to do was to study law. And it didn't take too long before President Grant uh, took notice of him and President Grant appointed C.I. Schofield as the attorney for Kansas. Well, that required periodic trips to Washington, and once you sort of get in with that traffic, it's not long before you get in with the drinkers, and that's what happened to Schofield. Even though uh, his mom had died when he was at a relatively early age, but both of his parents were Christians. His dad was a Christian who, after his mother's death, uh, attempted to uh, continue to raise him in the things of the Lord. So he was no stranger to any of this, but he got away from all of that, got to drinking, got in with people who drank, and uh, 14 years of his life he expended that way. But while he was in St. Louis, and during that period of time, he'd made the acquaintance of a man by the name of Thomas McFeeters. And one day McFeeters came to his office, and whatever business brought McFeeters to his office, uh, they talked about, and McFeeters turned to leave. And McFeeters got, imagine like that door right there being the door out. McFeeters got to the door, got his hand on the doorknob, and stopped. 
and turned around and said to Schofield, for a long time I've been wanting to ask you a question that I've been afraid before to ask, but I'm going to ask it now. And Schofield said to him, I never really thought about you as being someone who was afraid. What's your question? And his question, I want you to listen to how he, how he asked this question. He didn't ask, do you know if you died today, you'd go to heaven? That's not a bad question. That's not the question he asked. Here was how he asked his question. I want to ask you why you are not a Christian. To me, when I read that, I think to myself, wow, that's about like Jesus asking Saul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The man who held Stephen's clothes when they stoned him, the man who had obviously been stricken in his conscience and felt bad about that and was bothered when he saw the composure and the dignity of Stephen and who was troubled and bothered by that. Perhaps only the Lord knew that. But when the Lord asked that question, it's like it smote him to the very depths of his being. Well, think about Schofield, someone who was raised by Christian parents and then got away from all of those things and then to have someone ask the question right like that, I want to ask you why you are not a Christian. And later on in the story, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story in two different parts after this, so you'll have to stay with me. But you'll see, I think, that he knew exactly what he was doing with that question. I mean, he had thought about this. Sometimes you don't always get the, the, the benefit of being able to think in advance about these opportunities, but it shows that he had thought about this and knew exactly how he wanted to handle it with Schofield. Jesus says to her, give me to drink. It provokes a conversation, and that's exactly what happens here. Now, let's go to the second thought, which is the purpose. And in verse number 12 and also verse number 20, we see some interesting things about her response to this because uh, the woman says to him um, in verse number Jesus says uh, to her, in response to her first question, verse 10, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. So now we're going to, now's the transition. Now's the transition from literal water to the figure of speech that Jesus wants to use for salvation. If you knew who it is, if you knew what the gift of God was and you knew who it is that said to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him. Not me ask you. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, he already has the woman. I mean, she's thirsty. He's thirsty. She understands the need for water, and he's talking about living water, and he acts that like he's able to give that living water. Well, she's confused. She said, well, the well's deep. How are you going to accomplish that? And then in verse number 12, she says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? And then we get down a little bit further, and the, congregation, the, con the conversation progresses some more. And after she makes the deduction that he must be a prophet, in verse number 19, she says, Well, you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, and so forth and so on. Well, what do you see here? It's so typical of soul-winning endeavors and encounters. What do you see here? Yeah, it's exactly right. There's two things going on here. Either you get a distraction or you get a dodge. And so what's the distraction? Well, the distraction is this religious controversy that was well known to exist between the Jews and the Samaritans. She's kind of on the spot. The temperature's going up a little bit. Jesus said, go call your husband. That starts to raise the temperature just a little bit. She says, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, a prophet, you should be able to tell us all about this situation, about where people should worship. Is it, our, our people say it's in Mount Gerizim, here where Jacob, near to where Jacob bought a parcel of ground, and they only recognized the Pentateuch, the first book, the books of Moses from the Old Testament, but you Jews say it's Jerusalem. So what do you got going? And then when finally Jesus takes it down a little bit further, the dodge comes. Either a distraction or a dodge or both. The dodge comes in verse 25. She says, well, I know that Messiah is coming. And whenever he comes, he'll tell us all things. Do you see this? How many people here have had this experience? They either tried to distract you with a red herring, which is what this whole question about trying to settle this controversy, because you need somebody's hackles up, right? Invariably, you get somebody's hackles up in a conversation like this, and then the first thing you know, you really can't get back to the subject of soul winning because you've gotten so involved in this hassle. Jesus gives her what he has to say, but immediately steers the conversation back. And so what am I saying? Why am I calling this purpose? You could call it focus. The whole idea is, is that Oftentimes, we need to realize in soul-winning endeavors and encounters, this is what people do. It's what sinners do. I bet you did it. (laughs) I bet I did it. It gets uncomfortable when people ask us that question, right? And so we do this. Sinners do this. So you have to remember in these types of situations, no matter how strongly you feel about something, unless it's just something that you have to answer at the time, you're not there to win arguments. You're there to win souls. And you have to find a way to gently steer. You may have to say something in response to a question. Sometimes people ask you a question you just can't avoid. But you may have to say something in response to it. But always the idea is to be gentle and to try to steer the conversation back to the thing that you're really there for. And that's why I refer to this as purpose or focus. Well... Did this happen in Schofield's story? It really did, because when McFeeders asked him that question, remember the question, I want to ask you why you are not a Christian. Schofield thought about it for a minute. Remember, he's a lawyer. He thought about it for a moment, and he said, doesn't the Bible have something to say about drunkards having no place in heaven? He said, I'm a hard drinker, McFeeders. Well, what was that? Either a distraction or a dodge, however you want to, either one, somewhere between the two, both. It was kind of like, well, you know, McFeeders, I'm a hard case, so, you know, kind of. And McFeeders said to him, you have not answered my question. 
Schofield. I ask, why are you not a Christian? Schofield said, well, he said, I've always been a nominal Christian. He said, I've always been an Episcopalian, you know. And I won't tell you what he said next, because what he said next, let the next part. Get to that in a minute. But see how that works? You see how McFeeters brought him right back. That's not what I asked you. The Bible might say something about that. It does, in fact, say something about that. But that isn't what I asked you. Well, you know, he handled this. God had to be with him, but he had to have put some thought into this because that would be a good way to handle a lawyer. Because isn't that exactly what witnesses do on the witness stand? You ask them a question, and they, they try to dodge the question. And whether, whether they quickly, just answer the question. <laughs> you know, they, sometimes a judge gets after them and tells them the same thing. McFeeters did exactly that with Schofield, and Schofield was nailed. Well, that brings us to our third thought, and that is the need or the problem. See, now that this woman has her, we're going to go back a little bit in the story. Verse 16 Now that the woman is sufficiently interested, he's really got her on the hook with this thing about the living water and not having to come. She says in verse number 14, or he says, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, uh, the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Well, she's really interested now. She says, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. He's got her. But we haven't covered a really important subject yet. Because they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Now's where you're going to have to get to the harder part. It's not easy to start talking about the need. It's not easy to start talking about sin. But you have to somehow get to that subject because if they are not convinced they're lost, whatever they do do is not genuine. Someone who doesn't realize he's a sinner and someone who doesn't realize he needs a Savior is not someone who's in a position to make a profession of faith in Christ. It will be ungenuine if we do that. And so what does Jesus do? He says, go call your husband. Well, again, it's kind of an inoffensive way. You know, I mean... She doesn't have any way to know he knows all about this. But it's going to bring up the difficult subject. And so she says, I have no husband. And you notice how Jesus, like McFeeters, is persistent. He says, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that thou saidst truth, truly. You have to get to this sooner or later, right? I mean, in broad terms, this is bringing up the subject of why it is we need a Savior. And if you're thinking about the Romans road, that's really the first stop, right? Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't get to chapter 5, verse 8. For God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us until two chapters later. In the presentation of the gospel, somehow, if we don't get them to see that they're lost, and if we don't get them to see that they need a Savior, so that's what Jesus does. But there's ways to do it. 
And I, as I say, Jesus is tactful, but he doesn't skirt the issue. And so many times, the reason that we shy away from this is we say to ourselves, well, I'm really worried that I'm going to kill the deal. And I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, when, when in, the, in, the, in, the, in the church at Huntington, we always uh, designated October track month. And so, I mean, we always kept tracks. We always had track racks, and we always kept them well supplied. But when we would start getting ready for October, um, I would always put out some staples, but I'd always be researching and looking for some new titles just because I know people who are involved in this, and they like to have something fresh that they can give people. So we were looking for new titles and good tracks. I can't tell you how many tracks we turned down simply because they really didn't deal sufficiently with this issue. I mean, they just, they just, a passing reference maybe to we've done something wrong or whatever, but no real treatment to really give the Spirit of God an opportunity to convict someone of why it is they need a Savior. And it's difficult, very difficult to find tracts that, that mention repentance or anything like this. Sometimes you can talk about repentance without using the word, but it never hurts. It's not wrong. It's really difficult to find gospel presentations that get that job done sometimes. I'm not saying they're not there. I'm just saying in a lot of what's there, it's kind of lost that edge, I guess maybe would be a way to say it. We worry that we're going to kill the deal, but you know, the, the thing is, you may get a deal, but it won't be the real deal. It won't be genuine. So now to pick up the story about Schofield again. Schofield says, well, you know, I've been a nominal Episcopalian, but he said, I don't really recall, this is where it starts getting good. He said, I don't really recall that anyone has ever shown me how to be a Christian. I do not know how. Well, that's like saying, stick them to a bulldog to McFeeders. He pulled out a well-worn New Testament, which he had obviously ready for the occasion, opened the Word of God and showed him from verse to verse to verse how it was that he could have eternal life. When he got to the end of that presentation, he said, will you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Schofield's answer was, I'm going to think about it. Another dodge. McFeeder said, no, you're not. You've been thinking about it all your life. This is why I say I think he knew exactly where he was headed with that question. Why are you not a Christian? You've been thinking about it all your life, he said. Will you settle it now? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now and be saved? Schofield got quiet for a moment, got deep in thought again. Then he looked at his friend and he said, I will. <laughs> you know, the rest is history, as they say. What a conversion story. How it touches upon these very points that we're talking about this morning. And why I told you that is because I wanted to tell you what Schofield said about this. Far from losing the deal, far from bringing up the subject that's tough, and thinking that that's going to turn someone off and cause us to lose the opportunity to see someone make a profession of faith. This is what Schofield said about that later. It says, relating the story of his conversion after many years of Christian life and service, Schofield said, listen to this, mine was a Bible conversion. 
from a well-worn testament, McPheeters read to me the great gospel passages, John 3.16, John 6.47, John 10.28, Acts 13, 38 and 39. And I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and the passion for drink was taken away. McPheeters didn't lose anything. But he was tactful. He had an approach. He stuck to it, which is what we're seeing Jesus did with the woman at the well. The last thing that we need to be sure we get in, and it's the most important thing after you've done the other things, is this is the whole crux of the thing. There's got to be a solution. You establish the need, so I'm a sinner. Is there any hope? Well, Jesus does that right in the very last when she says, well, Messiah, verse 25, I've heard he's coming. He'll, he'll set us straight on all these questions. Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. He brought it right back to what he said in the beginning. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Wow, how many opportunities did people have? But that's what we do really, you know. We present Jesus to people and Jesus might not be right there in the room physically, but he's there. He's never any further away than what Romans 10, 13 says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's never any further away than that. Schofield found it to be true. You and I have found it to be true. Those of us who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, he brought her to himself. He presented himself. That, that has to be the be-all and end-all of all of our soul winning is always to present Jesus Christ as the true and living way, the only solution for sin, Jesus has already told her, it's a gift, and I'll give it to you. Rules out works. You're not going to do good works to get to heaven. Good works are not going to atone for your sin. The only thing that's going to get you to heaven is the good work he did on the cross of Calvary, and that's more than sufficient and doesn't need anything that you and I could add. It's not works. It's not the church. It's simple faith in Jesus Christ, and you know that's where it ended. Praise God. She, it says in verse 29, said to those men when she went back, Come see a man that told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And the same story that we see in John chapter 1 is repeated where one tells another. She goes and tell these, tells these men, This is amazing. You've got to come hear this guy. And they come pouring forth out of these villages, out of this village, and verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. For the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. Verse 41 says, And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. There it is. Philip, when he encountered that eunuch at the wilderness, the approach was different. The man was already sitting there reading Isaiah. I mean, that's as easy as falling off a step. How could it be more open to you? How could it be more plain? The guy's reading, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, no, I don't understand what I'm reading. How can I understand except one, show me. It's like McFeeders and the bulldog. Sick him to the bulldog. 
And Philip went up and joined himself to the chariot, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, and began at that same scripture to preach unto him Jesus. Not good works, not my church, not the health and wealth gospel. He began at the same scripture to preach unto him Jesus. That always has to be the be-all and end-all of all that we do with men and women, to bring them to the Savior. He's the only source of eternal life. As I say, folks, and let me close with this, most of us realize that God wants us to tell others. But sometimes I think our problem is we've never taken it seriously enough to really develop a plan. And it won't hurt to give some thought to these things about an approach that you might use if, that, if that's the way the conversation goes. And always to remember the example of the Savior that our, our purpose there is not to get off on a bunch of tangents. Our purpose is to bring people to Christ. Believe me. <laughs> Old Bob Jones used, Sr. used to say, if you give God your heart, he'll comb the kinks out of your head. And you'd be surprised how many things you never have to worry about straightening out if they accept Christ and are genuinely saved. Somehow those things... Many of them take care of themselves. We have to present the need, but just as passionately present the solution who is the Lord Jesus Christ.